I once said that at a conference, I won't tell you where, a large conference, and when I said, I'm a Scot and we don't clap, they clapped that. So, (laughs) allow me for a moment to say what a privilege it is for me to be here with you at this conference. My wife and I have had the greatest privilege of knowing about and sharing a little in the life and work of Radius for about five years or so now, and we count it one of the greatest of the Lord's blessings to us as a couple. Radius has deeply touched our lives. We trust for good And we are thankful to God for Radius and for the privilege of praying for a work that God has raised up for such a time as this. Lessons from the life of John Gibson Payton. We're here to hear about a remarkable man of God but we are here to learn about the God of this remarkable man of God. Let me begin by reading two verses in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, words you will know well, words that when you read them, touch deeply the wellsprings of our hearts and lives. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." A couple of weeks ago, I read the latest Radius update from Taiwan, and as I read it, I was struck quite forcibly by these words, which I think Wayne would have penned. He wrote, the best way to honor old missionaries is not to write another biography, but to step boldly out and do what those guys did. And I thought equally he could have said the best way to honor old missionaries is not to give another stirring address about the old missionary, but to step out boldly and do what those guys did. So my hope in this address is that while we will hear about the life, the remarkable life of John Gibson Payton, that at the end of the address, we will be asking ourselves, here am I, send me. John Payton was born in 1824, about 70 or so miles south of Glasgow in the southwest of Scotland in a small village. Born in 1824, he dies in 1907 in Melbourne, in Australia. I first came across 
John G. Payton as a very young Christian. I had no Christian background whatsoever. And the first biography that I recollect reading, and I presume someone must have given it to me, was the life, the autobiographical life of John Gibson Payton. I could not put it down. It made an indelible impression on my young Christian life. It spoke to me of a God who could do great and wonderful things through weak, frail, fragile men. Who was John Payton and why should we spend time at a conference like this reflecting on his life? Well, I actually hardly know where to begin. The danger with Payton is that high esteem can become hagiography. You, you place him in some kind of exalted pedestal and you forget he was a man of like passions such as we are. Why did John Payton raised in a little rural village far from the great centres of civilization in Scotland? Why did John Payton end up in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific? The answer is very simple. The words of Psalm 74 verse 20 indelibly were etched into his mind and heart. The dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. He was a man who, as a young man, as he read the word of God, as his father taught him the word of God, as he went every Sabbath day to hear the word of God, discovered that this world was full of the habitations of violence that there were places untouched, not just by civilization as we would call it, but untouched by the glorious gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Peyton understood, and we'll see this in a moment, that the South Seas were not full of island paradises. They were full of the habitations of violence. Now, Peyton was not the first missionary to go to the New Hebrides. He's born in 1824. In 1829, uh, two men were sent by the London Missionary Society to the New Hebrides, to the island of Eromanga, and immediately they arrived. They were murdered and eaten by the cannibals of Eromanga. So Peyton was not the first missionary to go to the New Hebrides, and actually he wasn't the first missionary to be sent by the very small Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland to the New Hebrides. Six years before Peyton goes to the New Hebrides, he goes in 1858. So in 1852, John Geddy arrives in Anitium. And by 1872, the year that John Geddy dies, 20 years after he first arrives, Kenneth Scott Latourette, the great historian of the Christian church throughout the centuries, tells us that about 3,500 savages, now you may not like that word, 
but it's an accurate word. They were savages. They were savages. By 1872, 3,500 savages had thrown away their idols, renouncing their heathen customs and avowing themselves worshippers of the true Jehovah God. In fact, a little later, it is said that the whole population of Anitium had become Christian. So Peyton was not the first missionary to go to the New Hebrides. We now call it Vanuatu. And nor was he the first Reformed Presbyterian from Scotland to go to the New Hebrides. Now, it would be easy to spend the time that I had and double it, telling you stirring stories about John Peyton, memorable stories, jaw-dropping stories, stories of spear-carrying cannibals setting his house afire, an irate chief stalking him for hours with a loaded musket, a native suddenly rising from a sickbed and holding him captive with a dagger to his heart. The life of John Payton uh, reads at times like an adventure story, with the hero saved at the last possible moment by his, by his own death-defying heroics. But it was not death-defying heroics that carried the Scotsman through, but rather a steadfast faith in God and a total willingness at each cliff-hanging juncture to either meet his maker or pick up his Bible and plough on in the work God had entrusted to him. I could spend all our time, and you would be enthralled to hear of these daring do escapades of John Gibson Payton. But you can read about that in his life, and part of the challenge of an address like this is knowing what to say and what not to say. And I decided a few days ago that rather than spend all my time telling you these stories that when I first read them captivated me, captured me. You, it's literally an unputdownable autobiography. But rather than do that, I want to challenge you to go and buy the book and read it for yourself. So after a brief overview of John Payton's life, I want to spend what I hope will be the majority of our time highlighting lessons for us to take to heart from Peyton's life. So first of all then, John's early years. Raised in a small village in the southwest of Scotland, he attended a local parish school until the age of 12 when he started learning the trade of his father. His father was a stocking maker and at the age of 12, John started work at 6 a.m., and finished at 10 p.m. He had two hours of relief during that whole time. And in those two hours, what did he do? He read his Bible, taught himself Latin, and read theology. 
He started work at six in the morning, finished at 10 at night. Do the maths, or the math as you improperly call it here. (laughs) And he had two hours. He read his Bible. He studied Latin. And he read theology. His missionary fortitude, I think, was forged in those early formative years of discipline and hard work. We we underestimate, I think, the spirituality of hard work and discipline. He recalls in his autobiography several times uh, finding his father on his knees, tears streaming down his face as he prayed for his children to know and love Jesus and, and become ministers and missionaries of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The godly life of his father profoundly under God deeply and pervasively impacted John Payton's life. There's no account of his conversion. That's very common. Um, Accounts of conversion are relatively a modern phenomenon. Our forebears were not so much interested in how you came to faith and when you came to faith, but have you come to faith? Does your life show by its devotion to Jesus Christ that you have been born again from on high and that the spirit of the living God indwells you? No account of his conversion. He tells us of the impact of his mother as well as that of his father. He remembers his mother praying, Oh, my children, Love your heavenly father. Tell him in faith and prayer all your needs and he will supply all your wants so far as it shall be for your good and his glory. And those words never left Peter. They never left him all his days. Tell your heavenly father in faith all your needs And so far as it shall be for your good and your glory, he will supply your needs. And then secondly is preparation for service. The resolve to serve the Lord among those who had never heard of Jesus became increasingly a consuming fire and passion in his life. At the age of 23, he leaves his family home and he heads for Glasgow the great center of civilization in Scotland. Not Edinburgh, that's the cultural capital. Glasgow is the heartbeat of Scotland. My wife's from Edinburgh, guess where I'm from. (laughs) He tells us in some detail the circumstances of his leaving. And I want to read them to you because they cast a shadow over the life of John Gibson Payton. He writes, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday and he's looking back 50 years. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. 
For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. John remained over 10 years in Glasgow, teaching, evangelizing. God had um, given him a remarkable gift for, for engaging um, uneducated, socially deprived uh, young men in particular uh, with the gospel of the grace of God. And he, he had a remarkable evangelistic ministry during those 10 years in Glasgow. But what drove him was the desire to go where Christ had never been heard. The Reformed Presbyterian Church, of which he belonged, was a small Reformed Church in Scotland, and they had been pleading for someone to go and to assist John Getty in the South Seas, and John Payton offered himself for missionary service. The secretary of the Heathen Missions Committee. You know, we live in these politically correct days. They were heathens. They were savage heathens. He rejoiced with unbounded joy. As you heard yesterday from Brooks, an older minister said to Peyton, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Peyton responded, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years, you'll soon die, you'll be eaten by worms. And it doesn't really matter to me whether the worms get me or the cannibals. I will rise on resurrection day with as fair a body as yours. I confess, he said, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, I will do so, whatever it may mean for me. And then there was the time to go. Peyton is ordained by the Reformed Presbyterian Church, March 23rd, 1858. He's 34 years of age. On April the 2nd, he marries Mary Ann Robson. Fourteen days later, they set sail on honeymoon for the mission station of Anitium. And after four months of sailing, they reach Anitium on August the 30th. They were soon sent to establish a new mission station on the island of Tana. The natives then were almost completely untouched by what we might call Western civilization. 
On February the 12th, 1859, John and Mary had a son. They named him Peter. Two weeks later, Mary died of a sudden attack of pneumonia. And two weeks after that, the baby boy also died. Peyton wrote these words. Feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I love those final words. No triumphalism. No sense of triumph or elation. God does all things well. He said, I struggled on. You know, brothers and sisters, that's much of the Christian life. Struggling on. Struggling on. I was saying to someone yesterday, I, I love words from Calvin. I can't quite remember where he wrote this. Better to limp along within the way that leads to life than to run headlong outside of it. I struggled on. I struggled on. And then you have Peyton's years of missionary service. In 1862, he's forced to leave Tana. And his life is hanging by a thread. And the other missionaries persuade him it's, it's time to leave. He travels to Australia, about 1,400 miles away, to New South Wales. He, he walks into a church. No one knows him. He asks permission to speak for a few minutes about the cause of the gospel. It was a pivotal moment in John Payton's life because from that moment on, he recognized that one of his God-given gifts was the ability to bring before churches the cause of missions and especially missions to the unreached language groups. When he was there, he began the Christian Shipping Company. And he especially encouraged children to lay by a penny, a cent every week to help provide a boat that would enable the missionaries to travel to the islands and go from island to island, not dependent on the godless sandalwood traders. Money was raised, the boat called the Dayspring was bought. He then returns to Scotland because the missionaries are saying to him, you need to go back, John, for a time and, and, and share the need of the New Hebrides. He goes back to Scotland to plead the cause of the New Hebrides and he returns 18 months later with seven missionaries and a new wife. Margaret Whitecross. His marriage to Margaret was a blessing, a profound blessing to him and to many beyond him. They had 10 children, four died in infancy. They went first to Anitium, then they go to Aniwa, another island. They labor there for four years or so. He's learning the language, he's translating it, he's He's putting it into an alphabet and he's, he's translating the Bible. 
They're setting up an orphanage. And in 1869, the first Lord's Supper was held. Twenty apply to come to the table of the Lord. And twelve are admitted. In speaking of his emotions during the first Lord's Supper, Peyton writes, I shall never taste a deeper bliss until I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus Christ. They held worship services every Lord's Day. He was a Sabbatarian. He was a passionate Sabbatarian. Why? Was that because he was a Scot? No, it was because he read his Bible. They held worship services. They sent native teachers to all the villages round about to preach the gospel. And so life continued for Peyton. In 1884, he, he returns to Scotland, his main object being to secure £6,000 for a second mission ship. The day spring had sunk. He addresses many congregations of, of different kinds uh, he, he's, a, he's a Presbyterian, he's a divine right Presbyterian, but he sees beyond his denominational convictions to embrace the people of God. And he succeeds not only in raising the 6,000 required, but 3,000 more besides. He and Margaret returned to Aniwa in 1886. They continued the work. In 1899, he sees his Aniwa translation of the New Testament printed. And by 1899, and he's 75, there are now missionaries on 25 of the 30 islands of the New Hebrides. In 1891, Cambridge University Perhaps, well, I was a little biased. I think Cambridge is the second finest university in the world after Edinburgh. But Cambridge University awarded him a Doctor of Divinity. His autobiography had been published not because he wanted it, so his brother had persuaded him, you must tell people about the Lord's dealings with you during your years in Tana in particular. And, and he writes this, and his autobiography literally takes the Christian world by storm. And Cambridge University um, give him this doctor of divinity. Most of his remaining years are actually spent in Australia, the United Kingdom, the USA, and Canada. And he's traveling to share the needs of the unreached people groups. And to raise funds to send men and women to people who have never heard the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ who were living and dying without hope and without God. At the age of 83, he dies and goes to Emmanuel's land. His body is laid to rest in Borodunra Cemetery in Melbourne in Australia. 
And on the tomb, his son Fred had inscribed the text that had overshadowed his whole life as a missionary of the cross. And it was the text, Lo, I am with you always. His son said, this text was what kept him through all his trials. And please buy the book and read it. Because he knew that in every trial and trouble that he found himself, he had the promise, Lo, I am with you always. And so he died. But he who died yet speaks. I've got 26 minutes and 7 seconds left. So I want to spend the remainder of our time asking what lessons can we learn from the life of John Gibson Payton. My hope is that it will be the God of John Gibson Payton that you will be most entranced by. So what lessons can we learn? Number one, he did not think He was an extraordinary Christian. He only did what God had called him to do and what God calls every Christian to do, to take up their cross and follow Christ. That's why I read those words from Luke 14 at the beginning of the address this morning. If you do not hate father, mother, wife, son, daughter, you cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, you know what the Lord is saying. He's using a Hebraism. He's he's saying, if, if your commitment to me and your love for me does not transcend everything dear and precious to you in this life, hear this, said Jesus, you cannot Be my disciple. This is not where you're to arrive after 10, 20 faithful years of discipleship. This is where discipleship begins. With wholehearted, unqualified allegiance to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He didn't think he was an extraordinary Christian. He just thought he was a Christian fulfilling the calling given to him and to all believers to center his life in Jesus Christ and his gospel. A second lesson, his parents loved him but let him go. I guess many of you are parents and grandparents. I want to ask you a question. Do you love God more than your children and your grandchildren? That's easy to say. Oh, absolutely, Ian. Of course I do. Of course I do. So if your son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter comes to you at the end of today or next week or whenever and says, God's calling me to Radius or wherever and I believe he would have me go to this unreached people group and the northeast of Burma or the southwest of the Sudan, what are you going to say to them? Is your first thought going to be, we may never see you again? 
life will be unbearably hard? Or will you lift up your heart to God and say, Blessed be God. Now, Lord, give me the grace to let them go and to speed them on their way. Do you really believe the best you could ever do for your children or grandchildren is to encourage them to obey the Lord's will for their lives? Will you make the parting poignant? Yes, poignant, deeply poignant, like Peyton's father's parting from his son was. Poignant but sweet because they're going in obedience to the Lord. A third lesson to learn, he was 34 years of age when he left Scotland for the New Hebrides. 34 years of age, the same age as William Chalmers Burns when he went to China, almost the same age when Hudson Taylor goes to China. 34 years of age. You see, the previous years were years of preparation. God was preparing him. And for 10 years, he was a city missionary in Glasgow. And he left a blessed sphere of ministry. People said to him, John, Don't be so foolish. God is blessing what you're doing. And it couldn't be denied. God was blessing what John Payton was doing. Do you know why he went? Because of the expulsive power of a new affection. That's a sermon, a title of a sermon that Thomas Chalmers, the greatest figure in Scottish, not just church life, but in Scottish life in the 19th century. It was, a, it was a title of a sermon he preached, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. John Owen, the English Puritan, would often distinguish between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. And it was because Peyton had been invaded by the expulsive power of a new affection, he was able to say to all the siren voices, I hear what you're saying, but something higher has captured and captivated my inmost being. A few months ago, I received an email from a friend of mine. I got to know him when I first went to Cambridge in 1999. I was there to pastor the very small Presbyterian church as it was then. And he was pastoring the thriving um, Baptist church, Eden Chapel. Don Carson spent his doctoral studies worshipping Eden Chapel. And and my friend had exercised from roughly the time I arrived in Cambridge to a few months ago, a profoundly fruitful ministry in Cambridge. 25 years he had labored and he had seen, I think, hundreds of people converted. He had seen... Men and women raised up and sent into the mission field. And he wrote to me and said, Ian, I'm leaving Eden Chapel and going to Madagascar with my wife. I'm going to teach the Bible. 
And I spoke to him briefly, contacted him and said, Julian, that's just glorious to hear. It, it really humbled me to receive this. What, what brought this about? The expulsive power of a new affection. He's almost 60. I don't know what Radius would do if someone of 60 turned up and said, here I am, you know, here I am. So he's off to Madagascar at 60. You're never too old. Never too old. Here am I. Send me. Another lesson, he embraced suffering as a gospel privilege. Now, Wayne spoke to us movingly about this yesterday. You know the words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul writes, It has been granted you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. It's as if Paul is saying to them, the Lord has been looking around and he's, he's thinking, I want to bless my people. How, how can I bless my people? How, how can I enrich their lives? What can I do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll send them suffering. Not because he's callous, indifferent, Do you know why he sends suffering? Because the man was forged in his holy humanity in the crucible of suffering. Jesus Christ became what he became through suffering. Hebrews 5 verse 8 would be a time to reflect on that. And I'm standing here thinking how easy it is for me to say that. I've barely known suffering in my life. But he understood that this was a privilege. And so when his wife of one year dies and their baby son two weeks later dies, he doesn't berate God. He refuses to run from the suffering. But maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, didn't you say he left Tana? After four years because of the threats on his life, yes, he did. Just like our Savior, there were times when the Lord withdrew because his time was not yet. Listen to these words. It's quite extensive quote from page 222 of Peyton's autobiography, but they give us a real sense of how Peyton understood God's dealings with him. Oftentimes, while passing through the perils and defeats of my first four years in the mission field on Tana, I wondered why God permitted such things. But on looking back now, 50 years on, yes, by that time, 30 years on, I already clearly perceive that the Lord was thereby preparing me for doing and providing me 
with materials to accomplish the best work of all my life, namely the kindling in the heart of Australian Presbyterianism with a living affection for these islanders of their own southern seas and in being the instrument under God of sending out missionary after missionary to the New Hebrides to claim another island and still another for Jesus. That work and all that may spring from it in time and eternity never could have been accomplished by me but for first the sufferings and then the story of my Tana enterprise. He isn't saying that we're to smile benignly when suffering comes. He isn't saying we're to seek to suffer. But he understood that the wise Heavenly Father knows best how how to build his church, extend his kingdom. You see, the sovereignty of God, not least in suffering, was not simply a doctrine that Peyton subscribed because the Westminster Standards taught it. He saw the sovereignty of God not as a conundrum, a puzzle to solve, but as a pillow to rest his weary head on. I love at the end of Romans 11, Paul has been expounding the gospel for 11 chapters, showing us our need of Christ, showing us God's provision of Christ, then in unpacking to us the riches of what it means to be in Christ. And then at the end of Romans 11, he, he, he makes this astonishing statement. He says, oh, the dead both of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, brothers and sisters, I'm out of my depth. I've done as best as I am able to do with the Spirit's help to set before you the glorious gospel of the blessed God. But I need to tell you, I'm out of my debt. His ways are unsearchable. His paths are beyond tracing out. And he's echoing, isn't he, those, those last words in the book of Job, where Job simply says, I put my hands to my mouth and let God be God. The God who is wise, who does all things well. You know, I'm sometimes asked, usually by younger people, uh, Ian, or if they're a little more respectful, respectful Mr. Hamilton, or whatever, when you get to heaven, what, what do you think are the first things you'll say? Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows? But I'd like to think that among the first things I'll say is this truly, Lord. You did all things well. Another lesson, he was dogged and determined. Peyton was gifted, but he prized doggedness above giftedness. In the evangelical world today, we're, 
we're far too enamored of gifts. We elevate gifts often above graces. And one of the great gospel graces is the grace of doggedness, of going on, of going on. Many of you won't know the name of Eric Alexander. He's one of the finest men and perhaps the finest preacher I've ever heard. He's 90 now. Sinclair Ferguson was his assistant in Glasgow. Eric told me that when he was a young minister, he was down in London with a friend, and they went to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach at Westminster Chapel. And there was about a thousand people in the evening service, and after the the service was over, Lloyd-Jones, who was just an uncommonly remarkable preacher, I had them once in the flesh as a very young Christian, and I sat for an hour at the edge of my seat. I, I just couldn't take it. It was just absolutely glorious. And Eric Alexander's friend said, well, go and meet the doctor. I know him a little. So they stood in this long queue of people who were waiting to talk to the doctor. And as they got nearer, Eric said to me, Ian, he kept saying the same thing to every person. He kept saying to them, go on. And I was thinking to myself, is that all the great man's got to say? These people have come, they've, they've lined up, they, they want to speak to him. And all he's saying is, go on. And then he said, it dawned on me. What better thing could he ever say? Go on. Go on. Be dogged. Be determined. Be resolved. We never really know the kind of Christians we are until we're faced with calamity and difficulty and trial and suffering. And it's then you discover perhaps what the Gospels mean when they say the last will be first. The unprepossessing, those who didn't have um, pulpit gifts or great organizational abilities, quietly who've gone about the work of the Lord have done it with dogged determination. Two more. He was not universally liked. I really dislike reading biographies that just glowingly tell me about some famous Christian, I think. There's an air of unreality about this because the Bible never hides from us. In fact, the Bible almost at times you think takes a kind of perverse pleasure. I don't really mean that, but it looks at times like, now I need to tell you about the glaring sins of this man who's called the man after God's own heart, David. I need to tell you, he was an adulterer, a conspirer, and a murderer. The Bible never hides the sins even of God's eminent people. And there were missionaries who, for over 20 years, till they died and Peyton died, who wouldn't talk to him. And the reason was, one of the reasons, the main reason was, in 1865, he supported the bombardment of some of the New Hebridean villagers by a British naval frigate. Um, these villagers had been behaving abominably. They had attacked various British citizens. And I don't want to go into this because... If it takes into the realm of the relationship of the civil magistrate and the church, and Peyton was a Scotsman, and 
Anyway, that's, I, I won't go into that. Anyway, many of his fellow missionaries thought that was terrible. We're here to evangelize, not to bombard. But Peyton didn't flinch. I'm not saying he was right. I'm not saying that at all. But he was a man of his times. He wasn't a perfect servant of God. And the danger is that we can give the impression that our great heroes were unlike us. They were just like us. That's why I began first lesson. He didn't think he was an extraordinary Christian. He was a Christian. And the last lesson, and maybe you're wondering, surely you'll come to this at some point. Here we've come to it. He believed in the power of the word of God. John Payton was a supernaturalist. He was a Calvinist to the core of his being, but he believed in the present almighty ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world and in the church. Benjamin Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, once wrote, Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. We're supernaturalists. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Apostles' Creed. That's why we should be reciting the ancient creed Sunday by Sunday, reminding ourselves of the great verities of the faith. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I say that because Peyton understood what John Owen meant when Owen wrote in... uh, I think volume 3, page 191 of his works. Without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. You say, wow. Well, he's only saying what 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14 is saying. Read it. Without the Holy Spirit, you know, Calvin likens the Bible to spectacles. That's wonderful. But giving spectacles to a blind man won't do him any good. He needs new eyes. The Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens sin-darkened minds and hearts. He comes from above, unless you are born from above, again by the Spirit of God. And Peyton believed in the present mighty working of the Spirit of God along with the Word of God that he infallibly inspired. He was an unembarrassed supernaturalist. John Payton, John Gibson Payton, is renowned. But I want to close simply by saying there were other missionaries who gave their lives serving the Lord in the New Hebrides who are not well known. John Getty, well, you might know a little bit about him, also from Scotland. What about the Watts who spent 40 years on Tanna? where Peyton fled from in 1862. They spent 40 years in Tanna, relatively unknown, but not in heaven. Not in heaven. John Gibson Peyton. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me, 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Young men, young women, are you looking for life? Then learn to die. Amy Carmichael received a letter from a lady in England asking her, what is it like to be a missionary? And she replied, being a missionary gives you the chance to die. Maybe you're thinking, I don't think I want to die. But if you don't die, you won't live. If you don't die to yourself, to everything around you, you won't live. So, I hope this short time looking at Peyton has made you think, yes, I want to know about John Gibson Peyton. But I want to know about John Gibson, Peyton's God. Let us pray. Who is like unto you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, the God who does great wonders? We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And we plead with you, Lord, that we would not live as if we were our own. We come and plead with you this morning that you would take our poor lives and use them to the praise of your glory, to the building of your church, to the saving of the lost, not least amongst the yet unreached language and people groups of this world. Lord, in your great mercy, and your mercy is very great. Look upon us all, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.